Well, good morning. All right, it's good to see such a full room. My name is Chad Myers, as Ryan said, and unfortunately for you, you have the next 30 minutes with me. So <clears throat> buckle up. Um, I am privileged to be on staff at Calvary Church in St. Peter's. It's just outside of St. Louis, and I'm our creative director there, so I oversee all things worship arts-wise, but I'm also on our teaching team. So I get to preach uh, pretty regularly at uh, each of our campuses. I rotate, and that's just a real passion of mine. And I have the privilege, too, of just being connected with some fantastic people. Um, Dan Clancy actually hired me at Calvary when, when he was there on staff. It was a great hire, Dan. Well done. Well done. <clears throat> and I uh, had the privilege to come speak at, to your students at summer camp last year and get to know Matt a bit better. And I just want to say this to you. I've interacted just a little bit with your staff and just the culture that they have, the internal culture and the culture with each other, it's exciting. It's attractive. And uh, I'm like, man, it would be incredible to be on staff with you guys. You guys love each other. You're excited about ministry. You're excited about serving the church and about serving the community and seeing God's kingdom come and God's will be done in the community outside of you. So that's just a, a privilege to uh, be received by you guys. And I, we've been talking this weekend with your students. Good morning, students. Hello. Are you awake? Some of you leaders, so you, you feel free to close your eyes. <laughs> I know it's been a long couple of nights, but it's been a privilege to be with you, and your students have been so uh, just incredibly gracious in uh, just our conversations and being able to communicate to them. So I'm looking forward uh, just to continue our conversation about how do you amplify, by God's grace, how do we yield ourselves enough to amplify our lives to each other and to those outside these four walls. This morning, I'd like to talk about amplifying community. What does it look like to amplify our community as the body of Christ? When I was 16 until I was 18, I had a job at Sonic. You have Sonics around here, right? We had a Sonic where I was. I grew up down in Amarillo, Texas, West Texas, and I got a job at Sonic. And I stayed there for two years for who knows why. But I, I, I started out delivering the food, and then once I got the handle on that, then I learned the drink station, and then I learned the shake station, and then I learned how to do drive through and I learned how to take orders. Finally, I learned how to expedite the food, and eventually I learned how to cook the food. So I could literally do everything that was required of any employee at any time at Sonic. And I remember, for whatever reason, one Sunday afternoon I was working, and people had called in sick. And it was just me and one of the managers. And we were just busting it. We were doing everything we could to stay on top of it. It was a nice sunny day and people wanted their 44 ounce, you know, cherry limes and their Cokes and they were coming in. And all of a sudden, we started running out of stuff. And he's like, Chad, I have to leave to go to another store to get what we're running out of. And so I'm going to leave you here by yourself. And I'm just like, this is insane. There's no way. I felt bad for anyone that came on the lot. But sure enough, the thing would start beeping at me. It was obnoxious sound too. When people would push the button to order their food, it beeps so loud inside the store. Like you can't escape it. It's like, hey, 
we want our food. And so like I'd run over and I'd, hey, welcome to Sonic. Can I take your order? And I'd take their order. And then I'd run to the kitchen and I'd throw the burgers on and I'd get the buns ready. And then I'd get their drinks ready. And then I would take it out to them. And then I would serve them, take their money, get their change. And you can imagine for the next 45 minutes, I was the only one working. I, it was crazy. I was running here. I was running there. I was running here. I was running there. And I wonder if sometimes you and I do our Christian life that way. If we think somehow that life together is really life alone. It's really me and Jesus, not necessarily we and Jesus. It's me. Everything is dependent upon me. I'm alone in this fight. I'm alone in this battle. I'm alone with my stuff. And I've got to do everything because no one's really there. And I wonder if in our Western individualistic culture, we've been misreading the Bible. We grew up reading a certain version of the Bible that was very I-centered instead of us-centered. And I wonder if there's a different way that we need to be thinking about how to do life together. This morning, I'd like to talk to us about what it might look like to live well in community with each other. I'd like to talk about a need for community, a community of the broken, and a community of healers. I don't have one specific text that I'm going to be in. I'm going to jump here and there. Um, But I will use predominantly James 5.16 in just a little bit. So first, I'd like to talk about a need for community. Why do we need community? Listen to Genesis 3, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. and So I hid. Now, you know that Genesis chapter 3 follows on the heels of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, kind of the setting up of God's grand narrative, the setting, the characters, what's going on in God's redemptive story. And God puts Adam and Eve in a beautiful place, his earth. This is a great place to live out his redemptive purposes. He blessed everything that was going on. He blessed humanity. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we find that humanity, listen carefully, humanity in our finite state, in our limited state, in our need for each other, in our dependence upon rest, upon food, upon all the things that make us human, God looked at that and said, very good. It's very good. He created us in his image, but that doesn't mean necessarily that we're completely like him. He created us to be human. And one of the things that Jesus is doing in his redemption is to restore everything that was lost from our original humanity in Genesis chapter 3. So as image bearers, being dependent, being finite, being limited in what we can know and what we can see, God looks down and said, that's all really good. And guess what? All that was really good was that we were supposed to be together. No, no one person bears out God's image fully alone. Adam and Eve together, working together, living together, being dependent upon each other. Needing other people is not necessarily a result of the fall is what I'm trying to get at. 
Needing other people is a result of being created human. And look at what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Two of the most powerfully destructive forces enter into the human condition. Fear and shame. You say, where are you getting that? Well, let's read it just real quick again. Look at the last part. God comes looking for Adam and Eve because they've committed the high-handed rebellion. It's not just a fall. Oops, I tripped and fell. This is, this is tyranny against the king. It's mutiny against the captain of creation. It's what the, the Old Testament calls a high-handed sin. It's actively, consciously knowing what they're doing to reject God's reign over their life. That's what they're doing. And they rebelled against God. And then they hide. And God, in the cool of the evening, when he would fellowship with his creatures because he liked fellowshipping with his creatures, he would come and he came looking for them. And he said, where are you? And listen to the response. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Fear? Because I was naked, so I hid shame. You remember at the end of Genesis chapter 2, the covenant ceremony of marriage takes place. God binds Adam and Eve together in a covenant ceremony. At the very end, what does it say? They were both naked and unashamed. And now something new has been introduced. Some intruder into their hearts have been introduced. And it's fear and it's shame. And if we as believers don't necessarily know where fear and shame are working in our lives, if we can't identify their destructive forces in our relationships and in our lives, we're toast. We're toast. They are single-handedly some of the most powerfully destructive forces that evil uses to disintegrate ourselves and our relationships. I'm reading a fascinating book right now on shame. It's called The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. And in this book, he argues that shame always pulls apart. It always pulls apart. It always leads away. Shame never has the power to move towards wholeness. It never has the power to move towards redemption. It never has the power to move towards growth. If guilt is something like, I did something wrong, I feel guilty, I did bad, shame is more like this. There's just this internal feeling of, I am bad. I can't shake it. And he argues that it's in our senses before we even develop our ability to speak and our, rash, our rational side of the brain, that shame can be introduced to us at a very early age. And what does shame cause Adam and Eve to do? They hid. And we've been playing the game ever since. I play it. I hide. I hide when I'm embarrassed. I hide when I feel small. I hide when I've done something that I feel guilty about or when I just feel shame, I hide. I hide relationally. I don't know if you're like me, but if, you get, if I get wounded relationally, I go into my internal man cave by myself and I'm like, I got to figure this thing out and I hide. I hide from my wife. I hide things from my kids. I hide from my close friends. And one of the reasons I think I hide is because somehow, somewhere, I thought that was where I would feel safe. But what if the opposite is true? What if the opposite, what if there's an alternative? What if the good news of Jesus liberates us to come out of hiding? And what if the safest place we could ever be is courageously and ruthlessly honest 
about who we are out loud before the face of the living God. It's going to feel dangerous. It's going to feel backwards. It's going to feel all sorts of wrong. But what if that's the safest place we could ever be? And what if that place is also lived out in community? What if that place is also lived out in community? Because community is not optional. It's not something that, hey, we should add people into our lives because that's just something we do. That's the biblical norm. That's the biblical norm. Fear and shame have been introduced, and if we don't know where they're working in our lives, we're toast. Um, we, we, we hide often. I, I bought, uh, we bought hamsters for our kids because we're good parents. Uh, I say good, not great, right? We're not great because we didn't get them dogs, and they've been like begging for dogs for years, and I'm like, we got four of you guys. We can barely take care of you. There's no way we can add a dog. So we bought them hamsters because we're good, not great. And, uh, and hamsters, uh, I was reading up a little bit on them. They're escape artists, and I had to read up on them a little bit because one escaped in our house. And we could not find this hamster. And I tell you what, I have never cleaned house like this looking for a hamster. It was our second daughter, Taylor. She was nine. She's nine years old. And it was her hamster that we lost. And she was devastated. And I'm looking online like, how do you find a lost hamster? I'm just like YouTube and stuff, right? I have no idea what to do. I just thought it's dead. We'll have to get another one. Maybe I'll get it at school and trick her, you know, and like bring it while she's at school. And then I'll get it. Never mind. <clears throat> I derailed myself. <clears throat> we couldn't find this thing for like three days. And broke my heart. One morning before she's going to school, she hugs me and she just starts to cry. And she says, I just want to hold my hamster again. And I made a vow right then, I am finding this hamster. <laughs> I set out food all over the house. I'm like, I'm going to figure out where this thing's hiding. And sure enough, one night on the other end of the house in our bedroom, my wife was mortified. She's like, who knows what that hamster's done in our closet? In our bedroom, I wake up at 5 a.m. and I start to, and I flip on the bathroom light and all of a sudden I see this little black figure whoosh, shoots right across the carpet. And I'm like, there it is! And I get on the ground, and I army crawl towards this hamster, and he goes into the corner, and I finally get my hands on him, and I put him in the cage, and I wake my daughter up later, and I'm like, Taylor, go look in the hamster cage. She was so excited. She was so terrified, though, for those three days. Dad, what if it doesn't have food and water? Dad, it's going to die if it doesn't have food and water. And the hamster didn't know any better. And in reality... When you and I hide because we're scared, in reality, we may not know any better. And we need someone to hunt for us. And I wonder if being known is one of the most scariest things we could ever go through before God and his people. But that's the exact thing we need to bring us life and provision and sustenance. We need community. But look at this. If we're going to be in community with each other, we're going to have to be a community of the broken. We're going to have to be a community of the broken. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German uh, theologian, and he led uh, a lot of German Christians in the confessing church over in 
uh, in Nazi Germany when Hitler was in power. And uh, they were hunting for him. And before they caught him, he started an underground seminary. Is this illegal underground seminary. And he began to live with all of the pastors that he was training. And he wrote a, a book on it called Life Together. And in that book, he talks about community. And he says this. Many times we know each other as the community of the righteous. We, we come in here and it's good. It's really good. It's beautiful. It's true. All of those things. We come in here and we worship together and we pray together and we fellowship together. And maybe we have small groups or missional communities or Bible studies or whatever it is that we do. And we know each other as the fellowship of the righteous. But he says, I wonder if we know each other as the fellowship of sinners. Do we know each other as the fellowship of sinners? And sometimes I think one of the things that is killing the church in the West is pretense. Because of fear and because of shame, we feel the need to put our masks on. And we feel the need to say, no, 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 it's fine. Even though secretly, when we're alone, we've got this thing and we don't quite know what to do with it. Students, we talked a lot about that this weekend. What do we do with that? And Bonhoeffer's argument is one of the ways we experience healing in those places is we bring that to the community and we share that with the community so that we're not just community of the righteous, but we're the community of sinners. Mark 2, 15 through 17, Jesus gets at this in this really, really rich passage. Look at this. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Levi's a tax collector. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Look at that. There were many who who followed him. Sinners. They, something about Jesus attracted sinners, and that threw the religious people way off. Something about Jesus attracted sinners. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, I don't know if they wanted to ask Jesus directly, they asked his disciples, well, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I don't know if they got their feelings hurt, that they didn't get invited to the dinner parties, or what was going on. Uh, probably more so their indignation, their self-righteousness was coming out, and they're saying, why is he eating with unclean people? Doesn't he know that that makes him unclean? He needs to set an example here. And listen to this response. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's an extreme statement of irony. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying that there is a, a, there's a large group of righteous people that he didn't come for, that he's only come for the unrighteous people? He's not saying that at all. He's saying, I can't cure you if you don't think you're sick. Many of you maybe been hit with the flu season, the flu this year. The flu season was just terrible. It was terrible where we were. And people right and left just missing weeks of school or weeks of work. And um, what's the one thing? What is the one thing that a sick person wants? To get better. To get better. And Jesus is saying, you've come into the physician's office and he's diagnosed you. And how bad is it? And he says, it's pretty bad. 
He says, well, you, you say, tell me how bad it is. And he says, well, the cure is the death of the eternal son of God. That's how bad it is. And we have to be in tune enough with our own need for Jesus to know that, hey, the one thing I want is to be cured. The one thing I want is to be cured. But we have to be a community of the broken, and we have to accept the fact that we are a community of the broken. You see this? In this, in this story here, you have Pharisees and you have sinners. And guess what? When sinners come into the midst of Jesus, there's something about him that's attractive. What do I think it is? I think it's this. I think that Jesus was the safest person on the face of the planet. That when sinners came before him and they said, all right, here's my stuff. Here's all of it. I'm laying it out before you. I can't hide it. As we talked about this weekend, students, like our backpacks, the stuff that we carry, the, the sin, the guilt, the shame, all that other stuff. So they couldn't keep their backpacks together. And luckily for them, Jesus promised to never exploit, to never abuse, to never judge, to never condemn, to never manipulate. And what does he call us to be? I think something like that. My question for myself and for us is, do sinners feel comfortable with me? Am I in tune enough with my own darkness that I've found a safety in Jesus? And in turn, do I create safe spaces for people? Do I create safe spaces for people or am I shocked by their sin? I, I just can't believe you would do that. And do I start to talk downhill with self-righteousness coming to them? Or am I discouraged by their sin? Like, ah, oh, I just wish you would get it together. And do I wallow in self-pity? Jesus was neither. He was neither. He was the safest person on the face of the planet. And church, he calls us to be the safest people on the face of the planet. I, I've heard of the things that are going on in your community. We had several really tragic instances in our community back in December. And me and Matt were talking back and forth, and, I've, and I heard what was going on. And my heart just broke for you guys, and I began to pray for you. And I began to pray for this community. And one thing I want to say to you is one of the ways that we can bring light and grace, as you guys already are doing so much out in the community, and it's an encouragement to you, is that we become the safest community possible for people to live out their brokenness. That when people come in and they got loads of stuff that they don't know what to do with and they're looking around and they're wondering, is it okay to be broken here? We say, absolutely, because I know what it's like to be broken. I know what it's like to not work. I know what it's like to say, I would love to do this, but I keep doing that. And I don't want to do this, but I keep doing that. And that we're so in tune with it and that we've become so secure in our identity with Jesus that we don't need them to be anything else, but that we love them right where they are. James 5.16 says this. James 5.16 says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. James here assumes a level of safety in the community of faith. Because that's the only way you can create a confessing community. Students, that's the only way. 
That's the only way that you can live out your brokenness before each other, or you can, as Matt kept encouraging you to discuss, as you can share your secrets with each other, with your leaders. The only way you can do that is on the grounds that it's a safe community, that it's okay to be broken but forgiven, that it's okay to say, I got this thing, I'm really scared of being rejected if I tell you, I'm ashamed of it, I've been hiding it, but I, I'm, I can't deal with it on my own. You were never meant to, ever, never meant to. And James assumes here that we might confess our sins to each other and be a community of the broken. But why? Why would we be a community of the broken? And I'll close with this point. Why would we be a community of the broken? Because so that we can be a community of healers. We can be a community of healers. You see, here's the thing. When we begin to, by God's grace, come out of hiding and we begin to live out loud, we begin to amplify our story, if you will, good, bad, ugly, beautiful, tragic, all of that. One person says that human, humanity is glorious ruins. All of that stuff before each other and before the face of the living God. We start to be known in community and we start to experience some small measures of healing. Because how in the world am I supposed to experience the grace and forgiveness of God? And I would argue this. It's not necessarily by going away into my prayer closet with my Bible and figuring it out. That's good, but that's the baseline. What it is is this. I'm inviting God to know me through his people. And when I begin to invite other people into my story, because that's the realest reality that we live in, I begin to what? Experience his acceptance through their acceptance. His unfailing love through their unfailing love. His forgiveness through their forgiveness. His kindness through their kindness. His grace through their grace. And I don't think it's an overnight thing. I think it's a lifetime thing. But if we begin to do that in some small way, we become a community of healers. Listen to the rest of James 5.16. You know this. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. And then so that, that's a, that's a purpose clause here, for the purpose that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So on the grounds that we've been accepted in the good news of Jesus and on the grounds that we are becoming the safest community possible because our leader is the safest person possible, never abuses power. On those grounds, we can confess our sins to each other. And when we do that, we start to experience the healing power of Jesus. Alice Miller, in her book, I found this is just a fascinating, fascinating story. In her book, The Body Never Lies, she relays a story of kids in Europe who were diagnosed with this condition. Listen to this, students. They were diagnosed with what's called neurodermatitis. And what that is, is it's a permanent condition where your body always itches. Could you imagine? It's a permanent condition where your body always itches. And the experts got together and they said this, there's no cure. There's, we've done every type of research possible, every trial. There's no cure for this at all. But when they put the kids, listen to this, when they put the kids with neurodermatitis 
in the section of a hospital with other kids with neurodermatitis. Do you know what happened? For almost all of them, the symptoms lessened, and for some of them, they became completely healed. Just by identifying with someone else, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. You're like me. You're like me. We have the same fallen condition. And guess what? The enemy wants nothing more than to keep you locked in that dark corner of shame and fear, convinced with your narratives that only you struggle with that. And it's not true. It's just not true. First Peter says that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I don't want to make too much out of this in the text, but it's interesting that almost all of the commands and the use in the New Testament are actually second person plural. They should be read in a good southern accent, y'all. Like, hey, this is for y'all, all of them. And this here says that Satan is looking for someone. Someone who feels isolated. Someone who is isolated. Someone who says, I'm the only one. Something's really, really wrong with me. No one else, no one else could handle this. I'm the only one. And evil says, that's exactly where I want you to stay. And Jesus says, on the grounds that you've already been accepted in the gospel, you feel free to come out of hiding, friend. And as you do, you begin to experience a community of healers. But here's the trick. Here's the trick. And I'm going to try to single-handedly undermine everything I just told you. If you seek community, you won't get it. If this is the one thing you want, it won't happen. Because every community that is insistent on experiencing community, some point in time, breaks down. Do you know what makes community happen? Mission. Mission. Someone once said, if you seek community, you don't get mission, and you actually don't get community. But if you seek mission, you get mission and movement and seeing God's good justice come on this earth. And as a byproduct, you get community. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced it. You've seen it out in the, in the public. You serve together or you've gone on a mission trip together. And you've been laser beam focused on this one thing. And all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, these relationships are incredible. And if we seek for community in and of itself, we become an ingrown people and an ingrown organization and ingrown organizations never last. They become dysfunctional and disintegrate. But if we become a community of people who are on mission to see our schools and to see our workplaces and to see our families come under submission of the kingdom reign of Jesus... And we do it together as a byproduct. 
we'll, I, I, I almost promise it will experience everything that I've been talking about. There was a study done in Sweden. These scientists were monitoring the heart rate of these choir members. Students, any of you sing vocalists, you're in choir? Yeah. They were monitoring the heart rate of these choir members. And guess what they found? That as the students, as the, the choir came together and they sang their songs, slowly but surely, their hearts began to literally beat in synchronization. Their, their minds were firing together. Obviously, they were breathing together, and that had a lot to do with it. But their hearts were being knit together, as Colossians 2 says. They were being knit together as they were focused on this one thing, and their hearts were beating as one. And what did Jesus say? Wasn't it something like, they will know that I've been sent by God if you're unified together. And if we are a community who's not running around as a group of individuals doing our own individualistic thing, but if we are a community of kingdom healers who come out of hiding, who've been liberated from fear and shame, we will be a community who is on mission and as a byproduct experiences the healing power of the grace of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, what a privilege to be with these wonderful people. And I don't know everything that's going on in their lives. I don't know everything that's going on in their hearts. But you do. And wherever they are and wherever these students are, I pray that you would give them courage. I pray that you would give them grace. I pray that you would give them resilience. Father, I look out at this room and I see a lot of wisdom. And I pray for the next generation, you would make them curiously hungry to learn from the generations that have gone before them. That we might learn from their strength, that we might learn from their perseverance, that we might learn from their mistakes. And I pray for those generations who have gone before us looking at this incredibly, wonderfully filled with potential next generation. And I pray that we would learn from them what it is to be vulnerable, what it is to share our struggles openly, what it is to be genuine and authentic. Teach us, make us curiously and humbly hungry to learn. Father, I pray blessings upon this church. Continue to empower them to be on mission with you. And as a byproduct, God, I pray for healing and grace to come individually and corporately. Would you do this for your sake? We ask in Christ's name.